This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hi, I'm Chinny. And I'm Astrid. And welcome to It's a Continent, the podcast that widens access to African history. We're also the co-authors of a book by the same name. You can find out more information about us on itsacontinent.com. So we're here to challenge the common misconception that Africa is a country and appreciate the identity of each nation. And through each episode, we'll be exploring key historical moments which have shaped the continent. Hello and welcome to season seven of It's a Continent. Season seven. We haven't been doing this for seven years. It just makes <laughs> us sound like we've been here longer than longer we actually than we have. Actually have. <laughs> we fit in about, what, two, three seasons in a year? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Whew, feeling a bit exhausted thinking about that, actually. And also, we are in a studio, guys, which is why I feel like I'm speaking slowly just because I like, I'm liking the sound of this microphone so much. Oh, it's, it's very, it's giving ASMR. Probably really isn't is. giving that for you guys, it, yeah, but it's giving us. Yeah, it's giving us. <laughs> <laughs> We feel it. Look at the timbre. There's so many tones. So many tones. <laughs> if I start speaking really slowly, let me not get into an ASMR tone of voice. I'll start but eating so- a crisp in a minute for no reason. <laughs> <laughs> but no, we are back. Yeah. Yeah. It feels like it was a short break. But we, back. you know, look, the demand and, you know, we've got way more stories to tell. So we just had to get back to it. Mm-hmm. Sounds good. Sounds good. Right. African pride. Let's yeah, do this. Let's go. This week, I would like to recognise Safan Hassan, a Dutch athlete of Ethiopian descent who emerged as the winner of the Women's London Marathon 2023. So that just was a couple of weeks ago. It was her debut in the marathon event and her victory came as a surprise to many people. So throughout the race, there were moments when it was uncertain whether she would be able to complete it because she basically stopped twice she had two stops so one stop was due to an injury so at that point they were like right you're out of this race and the other happened when she tried to get a drink and she almost collided with a support motorbike so yeah that is a bit dramatic (laughs) yeah and she even so there was a scene i don't know if you've seen it but Mm. she offered one of her competitors a sip from her water bottle which i thought was adorable as well because as they're running she's just like do you want do you want, do you want drink? I mean, I wouldn't even be able to like string a sentence together. <laughs> like the struggle is real when I'm attempting to run at the gym, like, let yeah. alone when I'm doing a marathon. Yeah. And in a post-race interview, she said, I didn't practice getting a drink because really when you're practicing for the marathon, you practice these kind of like, you know, I'm going to a, grab a drink at this stage, stop that kind of thing. And she said, I didn't practice getting a drink. I'm just naturally inclined towards drama. Yeah. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> live for the drama there were two pieces of drama and hey she managed to to win so yeah yeah, on her debut on her debut i feel like if i did the marathon that would be my attitude of like oh yeah i'm gonna do i'm gonna do well i'm gonna do well no i will be the last person i would do do so badly so badly but no congratulations to her but also congratulations to all those people who oh yeah 
like around the London Marathon this year. Like, yeah. it also the weather was not giving yeah. this year. So yeah, no props to you guys. Yeah, is it really a podcast based in the UK? If you don't mention the weather, sorry, it's such. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, no, honestly, uh, congratulations because yeah, it takes a lot to do that, and I'm not ready yet. Definitely not. Right to kick off this season, as you guys know, we've been doing themes, so. We're diving into the world of mining in Africa as one of the most mineral rich continents in the world. Africa is home to almost half of the world's gold, 1 billion tons of minerals worth a staggering 406 billion produced in 2019. And according to the United Nations, Africa is home to 8% of the world's natural gas reserves, 12% of the world's oil, 30% of the world's mineral reserves, Mm -hmm. 40% of the world's gold, and 90% of its chromium and platinum. Yeah. This presents a massive economic opportunity for many African nations. However, it isn't exactly the reality. So the topic of mining and minerals is so vast, we're not going to cover every single one of them. So what we've decided to do is take a brief look into the world of mining, but explore it through the lens of cobalt. So what is cobalt? Um, And before we start talking around the challenges surrounding cobalt, we'll start by understanding, basically simply put, what it is. It's a metal that's mainly mined in the Democratic Republic of Congo, Australia, Canada and Russia. It's a critical material in the production of rechargeable batteries, especially lithium-ion batteries that power everyday devices such as smartphones, laptops, tablets and electric devices. So basically... Everything in this room. (laughs) Mm -hmm. This is uh, what cobalt is mainly known for. And it's essential in these batteries as it allows them to hold more charge and operate safely for longer periods. So the demand for cobalt is increasing due to the global focus on the environment. And additionally, the electric vehicles market growth is driving cobalt demand. The battery packs in these vehicles require up to 10 kilograms of refined cobalt each, more than 1,000 times the amount needed for a smartphone battery. According to the World Bank, demand for cobalt production will increase by 500% by 2050 to meet the growing demand for clean energy technologies. And I think something that I just want to add is it's so important to have these discussions around things like cobalt because Mm -hmm. as we are pushing more in terms of, you know, being environmentally conscious, the fact that an electric vehicle is using so much is actually important to kind of say, okay, what do we need to do to fix? We'll get into like the supply chain challenges yeah. now to make it sustainable so that when we are all driving electric vehicles and, and things like that, that it's not, we're not thinking about it until it's too late. And I yeah. think that's what we've been, we as the human race. Um, or the been, establishment, sorry. Oh, <laughs> the, esta- the, es- the establishment, <laughs> the people, um, just have been super late in really having answers to those questions now before it's too late rather Mm -hmm. than kind of then trying to fix and have come up with a solution once we've literally like (laughs) yeah do you know what I mean (laughs) we've completely looted everything got have have run out of cobalt and we're like right so what do we do next we've run out of cobalt we've run out of fossil fuels yeah we just walk everywhere (laughs) hey that is also good exercise but yeah The challenge with cobalt mining in the Congo lies not with the mineral itself, but rather the issue of exploitation. All too familiar, methinks, there. Mm -hmm. Certain Congolese leaders have used this resource to enrich themselves at the expense of their people, failing to ensure that economic benefits are shared fairly. 
Meanwhile, companies that use Congolese cobalt in their products are worth billions of dollars. Uh, However, these individuals who extract cobalt from mines in the Congo live in dire poverty. And the story of exploitation has been ongoing within the Congo for centuries, from the era of the slave trade, followed by colonisation under King Leopold of Belgium. And we did actually have an episode of that first season. Mm-hmm. I um, definitely feel like you should listen to that first. Like, obviously, yeah, definitely listen to this. Continue, but yeah, go back, listen to that should. first because it then sort sets, the, sets scene. the scene to yeah. them understanding also the looting and kind of exploitation that is going on now through um, mining. Yeah, recommend that. Scroll back to season one. <laughs> scroll back. <laughs> that will be a long. That's a long scroll. scroll. Like, a long, a long scroll. <laughs> we can't even remember which it's season I one. I can't, we can't even remember tell you which episode. <laughs> It was a memorable one. (laughs) The Congo is one of the few countries in the world that boasts an abundant range of natural resources, including cobalt, of which it is the largest global producer, accounting for 70% of the worldwide production. Most of the country's cobalt is located in the southern region, specifically in the city of Kolwezi, where there are estimated to be approximately 3.4 million metric tonnes of cobalt. That is a lot of cobalt. A lot of cobalt. This has resulted in a large influx of people, including Chinese investors and workers, moving to the area to take advantage of the resource. China plays a significant role in the DRC's cobalt industry, as approximately 80% of the cobalt mined in the Congo is sent to China for processing. Something that I wanted to highlight when I was doing research into this, basically, as we were saying, like, cobalt is found mainly in the southern region. You literally had people whereby, like, villages, where if they found that there's cobalt underneath kind of someone's house someone did that and basically started digging up their house to try and get access to it like people just like destroying to get access because also it's a way it's how you're going to make money do you know what I mean it's it's not easy when we'll get into that but it is a way and if you've got it right there under Mm. under your living room it's literally like sitting on a gold mine yeah basically it's not so fun (laughs) to sit on a gold mine because you're at risk of exploitation here yeah In the year 2000, President Zhang Zemin proposed the creation of the Forum on China-African Cooperation, which paved the way for China's investments in African countries. A few years later, in 2007-2008, following the establishment of the Forum, the then-president of the Congo, Joseph Kabila, entered a deal with Seco Mines, a mining company of which 32% is owned by the DRC and the remaining 68% is owned by China. Sorry, this is quite an imbalance here. <laughs> so, yeah. Wait, what? <laughs> what? But in the structure of Seco Mines, what you have is that 32% kind of, that we said, is owned by the DRC. 68% is split between three, if I recall, three different Chinese organisations. But yeah, China it's still, owns the majority. Yeah. It's still a lot, but even <laughs> though, but yeah, just to kind of provide detail, it's all owned by China, but like three different organisations. Yeah. And this was an infrastructure and exchange for materials deal. And actually, we will give you another recommendation to another episode we did, the China-Africa episode, because I think this also is a good, uh, after you listen to this one, of course, a good continuation of what else China has been doing within the continent. What season is that, Jane? I have no idea. (laughs) (laughs) You started saying that with such a bit. I was like, I was like, no, I do not recall. I do not not recall. I I do not recall. (laughs) Oh, my gosh. The $9 billion deal would have seen Seco Mines construct roads, hospitals and universities with the funds to be repaid through the value of copper cobalt deposits excavated by Seco Mines. If the deposits were insufficient, 
the Congo agreed to repay the loans through other means. This is the annoying thing. Other, other means, means equals what? What? <laughs> we really need to be specific in contracts, people. Yes. We cannot be saying other means. Other means. That just, again, opens up the country for further exploitation. Yeah, definitely. And the president described this deal as the deal of the century, apparently. Unfortunately, the Congolese people did not see many of the developments promised under this agreement. And once again, they were the ones who lost out. Only Joseph Kabila and his close associates, as well as China, benefited from this deal. And around the way in which the then president benefited. So basically, you had this like pot of nine billion that was going to be paid, right? He had it all set up that it was going through the bank, but then basically the it was his own bank, essentially. And then, yeah, he, him and his family enjoyed, I'm sure they, enjoyed yeah, that money. Enjoyed it. Enjoyed that money. Yeah, shopping trips galore. Mm-hmm. And hospital treatment, probably. But <laughs> I projected. <laughs> the president of the DRC, Felix Chisakedi, is determined to renegotiate the previous agreement made by his predecessor, Joseph Kabila, to ensure that the country and its citizens receive their fair share of the benefits. In May 2021, President Chikasedi stated, It is not normal that those with whom our country has signed exploitation contracts are getting richer while our people remain poor. It is time for the country to readjust its contracts with the miners in order to seal win-win partnerships. The State Audit Office, Inspection Générale des Finances, IGF, requested an additional $17 billion in infrastructure investment from China in February 2023 to make the deal more equitable. The IGF's report revealed that Seco Mines had invested only $822 million in infrastructure projects in the DRC, despite earning $10 billion from contracts over the last decade. The IGF now demands China increase its investment in the DRC and hire more Congolese staff to promote economic development and create a fairer agreement. What I find interesting about this whole agreement is just a it was a the initial one was a terrible one, but there's not that like the Congolese government isn't realizing that you have the upper hand, and yeah. I don't know like you know we're the, the ones end, that have the goods. At you the end have of the day. The, at the end of the day, you have the goods. It's mm. about really making sure that you put yourself in a place whereby you really benefit from it Mm -hmm. rather than having these weird contracts with other means if Mm -hmm. you don't get because actually you're at the position of advantage here but what seems to have happened and there's you know in the episode show notes I'll share with you guys the book that I read around this Cobalt Mm -hmm. Red but also there's a documentary on this as well whereby China has just come in and taken over a lot of these southern regions where the mines are located and some of these mines like they're not employing uh, Congolese people they're bringing in kind of Chinese workers. Yeah. Like, and so they've sort of created their own, their own <laughs> ecosystem. Yeah, ecosystem within yeah. it. And I'm just like, what are you doing? We really need to. And I understand that the president at the moment is trying to look into this, but it's just, it's not making sense. Mm-mm. You have a lot more power because you have the minerals. Mm-hmm. The cobalt mining industry in the Congo is dominated, as we said, by Chinese firms that own several major industrial copper belt uh, mining complexes. So aside from these traditional mining companies, there are also some artisanal miners who extract cobalt from illegal or semi-regulated sites. And they contribute up to 30% of the Congo's cobalt. 
These miners often lack the proper tools and equipment for mining, which puts their lives at risk. In the documentary Blood Cobalt, the Congo's Dangerous and Deadly Green Energy Mines, it was shown that some of these artisanal miners, including a mother and her children, risked their lives by illegally entering private mines in search of cobalt. They face the risk of being beaten or arrested by security personnel. And in addition to the physical dangers, artisanal miners also face health risks such as cancer, lung disease and heart failure due to prolonged exposure to cobalt. These artisanal miners often use the most dangerous method of cobalt extraction known as tunnel mining. Definitely, yeah, look into YouTube how they do that because they basically create these like deep, as I said, like tunnels Mm. underground. And there's no like infrastructure. So what does end up happening, trigger warning guys, it can cave in on people. So that Mm. has happened several times. Despite the risk, artisanal miners earn around two to three dollars for their work. This reminds me quite a lot about uh, Nigeria and how you do get people that try and access some of the the oil pipelines, uh, tap into these pipelines illegally, as you say. And, And it is a big risk. But at the end of the day it's really a question of survival because the people that live in the local area are are impoverished because of this uh, outside influence and this is all they can get really. Yeah. Cobalt for artisanal miners is brought into the formal supply chain through a system of traders and depots. These traders purchase cobalt from artisanal miners and either pay a fixed price or offer a split of the sales price to the depots. Once the traders have loaded their hauls onto motorbikes and pickup trucks, what they do is then transport the cobalt to the depots for sale. Depots are like small shacks where cobalt is sold and there's no scrutiny of the conditions under which it was mined. So they're not out here being like, oh, who mine this? How was it done? No. After the depots purchase cobalt from traders or artisanal miners, they then sell their supply to industrial mining companies and then that supply is then processed. At this point, it's impossible to distinguish between artisanal and industrial production. Because as we mentioned before, you also have mining companies also kind of doing it, which is quite Why unquirky. Is it? It's called room. artisanal, but it makes it sound like yeah, it's some kind of bakery. Yeah, but yeah, it's, yeah. Really, it is, it's, it's really like, not. It's like, like people's honestly, lives are at risk. Yeah, here. I feel like it needs to have a different word because I think the co- connotation of artisanal, you're imagining someone like... Oh, it's like, ah, where, you know, we... Yeah. we. <laughs> but you're just like... Mate, this person like almost Literally. risked getting like caved in, like to Just get this cobalt. But yeah, it's not that. definitely not. <laughs> it's difficult then at this point in the supply chain to distinguish between the two. Unfortunately, the Congo doesn't refine cobalt to a commercial grade in the country. They just don't do that. They don't have the system set up. So China handles that part of the process. Of course they do. So the extraction <laughs> is done, processing, getting it all yeah. to ready for all the different techs and devices that we all have is um, predominantly carried out by China. Mm-hmm. And that's, yeah, that's the, that's the point of it, really. That's what they want to happen. They don't want to get involved with these sort of sticky, difficult situations. But I do also think it's, there is an accountability piece from the Congolese government to see, mm. like, the more of the supply, I'm getting so businessy out here, guys, mm. but the more of the supply chain you can own, mm as much of it to get Mm -hmm. to a point like you're doing you know you're getting the minerals you're attracting it and then also doing the processing and then you yourself can then sell it that's the the self-sufficiency piece that is the piece because actually if you can keep it 
as much of it within the country mm-hmm. that is great and it can support that development support you're not having to ask china to employ more congolese staff yeah you can do it yourself and that actually reminds me of what thomas sankara said i know we okay. <laughs> I, wow are you really is that I, what you're doing i'm invoking the spirit of thomas oh, sankara i can here. imagine you in a meeting just being like so that actually reminds me of something thomas sankara said <laughs> yeah. we're like what what is that <laughs> But when he talks about the he who feeds you, controls oh, you, yeah, yeah, yeah. making sure that everything was sort of done in house, you know, mm. all of his, uh, you know, he ensured that the people of Burkina Faso were actually producing their own materials, um, which meant that you didn't have outsiders coming in, sound a bit Brexit here, but you know what I mean, mm. coming here and like taking over the process and actually benefiting themselves. But as much as we can keep, as you say, the supply chain within the country, mm. and that's the problem because we're still the way that neoliberalism and neocolonialism work is that Africa is still seen as this place of resources. Yeah. And Africa is not seen as a manufacturing powerhouse. So people feel that they can just go in there, be like, right, we've already got this set up, extract, and then go home. And go home. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's, that's the big problem right now. The cobalt mining industry in the Congo also faces the pressing issue of child labor. And it's difficult to know how many children work in the industry. But in 2012, UNICEF estimated that 40,000 boys and girls worked in the country's southern region. Now, despite this, there are few alternatives for these children, as there are no schools for them to attend. So they work, even though this is in violation of Congo's mining code. Also, according to Sister Catherine Mutindi, the founder of Good Shepherd Kolwezi, a Catholic charity that works to stop child labour, children who work in the mines are often given drugs to suppress hunger. Which is wild because obviously when a child is hungry, they, they need the food, you know. It's all about development here. Mm-hmm. And they're then basically being starved in a sense and not given the, the nutrition that they need. And as a result, many of these children do not remember the last time they had a meal and they don't make enough money and they may not eat at all. I just feel this episode is like points back to so many other episodes we've done before. But it does remind me of the Coca episode where there were lots of uh, examples of, of child labour that have been happening across the continent as well and also i think when you're going like again going back to the supply chain thing but you can be so far removed from it and sometimes you do find these organizations on the website you'll see kind of when it comes to cobalt and what they're doing about it that sort of thing but mm. as we said the difference between what is being mined in um like what a mining organization is mining versus what a artisanal Mm -hmm. a miner is doing Mm -hmm. it does get lost between the supply chain so you can't really trace it to the point where you're saying like yes this specifically came from x and it was done in a done well and all of that stuff and it met all the codes and regulations you can't do that because it does get blurry Mm -hmm. and so we sort of have to i feel like you also have to just assume that to be honest there was some form of exploitation something mm-hmm. happened that it's not all kind of rose tinted and mm-hmm. everything is done cleanly no definitely another crucial issue that should be addressed is the environmental impact of mining cobalt in the congo so cobalt is toxic to touch and breathe the mining process releases toxic cobalt dust into the air inhaled by hundreds of thousands of congolese people daily This is just one aspect of the horror show at the bottom of the cobalt supply chain where almost all the world's cobalt comes from. Additionally, cobalt mining has destroyed natural landscapes, rivers, uh, villages and and air pollution as well. As you can see, the cobalt supply chain... um, It's a hot mess, if I'm honest. Yeah, it is. It's riddled with abuse and exploitation. 
sadly, these issues are hidden behind multinational supply chains, making it difficult to hold companies accountable, but also nations. (laughs) (laughs) It's not just companies. But that being said, it's clear that action needs to be taken. But I guess the question really is, how do we create a more ethical and sustainable cobalt supply chain that also benefits the Congolese people? Anyone have the answer to that? They can just send us an email. What are we going to do with that? What are, what are we going to Yeah. Because I think sometimes when this topic is covered, it tends to be like, oh, the smartphone that you have, the laptop. Oh, this. No. Okay, yes. But it is part of a much bigger, it's a much bigger piece. piece than that. Yeah. Especially when you start thinking about the drive towards electric vehicles as well. Mm. Like, I just think it's not a... That is obviously an element and it, you know, we're using these um, devices and everything, but it is a bigger piece around supply chain and creating fairness and how do we do that? And we have that in different areas, as you said, around like cocoa, that sort of thing as well. Mm -hmm. So it's a lot of fixing needs to be done. That was our first episode back of season seven. Indeed. Um, Welcome back. Yes. And um, you can follow us on Instagram at Pod. On Twitter at It's a Continent, our website, itsacontinent.com, and our lovely book, It's a Continent, paperback <laughs> out soon. Yes, coming soon. Yes. Soon, yes. Okay, uh, well, thank you for listening, and we'll see you in two weeks' time. Yeah, see you then. Bye. Bye.